Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm usually on this show on Wednesdays, but today I'm filling in for the great Bill Nygut. He'll be back at the mic tomorrow. So week after week, it feels like everyone is talking about Georgia. Just think of the latest stories. A ransomware attack on a gas pipeline led to long lines and panic buying of gasoline, leaving a number of Georgia gas stations empty at the pump. Meanwhile, U.S. Representative from Georgia Marjorie Taylor Greene's latest remarks created a plot twist for the House GOP's plans in the highly watched controversy over Congresswoman Liz Cheney's leadership role. And of course, there's the constantly changing who's who of who's running in upcoming state elections, including in the race for Atlanta mayor, for Georgia governor, and speculation over which Republicans might step up to challenge Reverend Raphael Warnock for a Senate seat in 2022. We're going to talk about all this political news and a whole lot more today. And I have an excellent panel joining me for this discussion. Please welcome, first up, Dr. Kurt Young, professor of political science, Clark Atlanta University. Professor, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I always look forward to this conversation. Yeah, so am I. It's going to be a fun one today. Um, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver from Decatur. Representative, thanks so much. Good morning. I hope somebody can tell me where I can go get gas this morning. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second, but I'm hoping the same. Uh, Leo Smith might be able to tell you, Republican strategist and president of Engaged Futures Group. Well, I've been strategizing. You can see the playbook behind me for finding gas. It's not very helpful. Yeah, it looks like uh, Leo's <laughs> sitting in an office. It looks like there's a lot of X's and O's behind him. Are you at a football, uh, <laughs> you at a football you at a UGA coach's office? Or the future of the GOP office or something. There you go. <laughs> and Riley Bunch, the State House reporter for CNHI News. Thank you so much, Riley. Thanks, Greg. Good to see you at the mic this morning. <laughs> it's going to be some fun. Exactly. Um, and we'll talk first about that gas crunch, because the Biden, the Biden administration is scrambling to ease the gasoline crunch that's causing scattered shortages, fears of price spikes, long lines, all that. This is all after the cyber attack on Alpharetta-based Colonial Pipeline. State, state officials have suspended the sales tax on gas and urged Georgians not to panic, but some seem to be doing so anyway. Riley, uh, you've got some news this morning from the EPA as it relates to Georgia gas. Yeah, yesterday I, you know, I called up the Department of Ag wondering how is this going to impact our ag industry? How is it going to impact our inspectors, our crop growers? Um, one thing they said they were doing is working with the Environmental Protection Agency in creating and signing a waiver so that there can be some additional gas use. So I learned this. This is completely new for me, but there are different mixtures of gas throughout the year. So there's a fall and winter concoction. This is usually out of circulation right now, but they, the EPA signed a waiver allowing it to be used. So hopefully that will bump up a little bit of our supplies. Yeah, and, and um, might not be immediate, but it should add um, at least some more supplies to gas stations around the state. Representative Oliver, uh, are you satisfied with the response? Are you hearing a lot from constituents? And what are you telling them? I think that most people are like me this morning, looking at my week. I've got a quarter of a tank in my car, and I've got two miles to my office. So I can get back and forth to my office through Friday. But 
um, I'm pretty nervous about it in terms of what my obligations are this week, and I'm grateful that it's not a week that I have to go a lot of places. Is there any gas available inside the perimeter? That's my question, and I don't. I think the answer might be no. That's pretty serious, I think. I was listening. I should have gone and get gas on Sunday, of course, but I didn't. Uh, I believed it that, you know, the admonition don't hoard and we'll get this moving soon. They're still saying by Friday. I wonder if that's realistic, that my local gas station will have plenty of gas by Friday. That's that's two long days from now. Yeah, and that's an important question because we've heard from Governor Brian Kemp and other state officials saying don't hoard only, mm-hmm. only get what you need. Don't go fill up 17 gas tanks and shove them in your trunk just in case that, that, that there's enough supply right now, especially um, as state officials think this is going to be a shorter-term problem, not a long-term problem, and that hopefully by the weekend the supply is going back up. Leo, you've had kind of your own travail this morning. Yeah, yeah. I'm making a trip down uh, to, to Athens from Smyrna, Georgia. I had a very difficult time. I had a quarter of a tank, but I eked it out and found some on 316. You know, and as I thought about this, this trip here, I thought about all the things that Georgians, Americans are suffering through the pandemic. You know, we didn't have great job numbers. And now this is going to further uh, hurt uh, Biden's goal to really kind of ride uh, a high rating and, and, and deal with the fact that now people are going to have a lack of confidence in his ability to protect the infrastructure that is uh, the oil and gas pipelines. And, of course, Keystone Pipeline is going to come back up in the discussion th- th- today. Yeah, Professor Young, I wanted to ask you about that because that that has been even though even though the Keystone Pipeline has little to do with the supply on the eastern seaboard, um, this Colonial Pipeline I think supplies about fifty five percent of fuel um, in our part of the country. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, social media chatter. We're seeing a lot of uh, debate crop up. What is your take on all this? Mm, I see two things happening here. Uh, of course. The local implications that we're talking about this morning are critical, and and as they say, all politics is local, right? Um, however, there's an, an international dynamic here. We have been hearing and understanding this, that this day would come, and in fact, this notion of the vulnerability, as as Leo mentioned, of the American infrastructure has been on the table, and um, I, I I agree that this president is going to inherit that reality because that reality is now here. And, and I guess this is the second time in the state of Georgia, specifically the city of Atlanta, where we've seen this, right? Because we're looking at, we just are heard Mayor Bottoms talk about her inheriting um, that uh, attack on uh, the city of Atlanta's uh, internet infrastructure. So that's a reality now. And, and uh, of course, the gas prices are key, but I think that's a larger uh, national and international phenomenon. Greg, the second thing that I'm seeing here as a kind of a continued play from what we saw in Texas a couple months ago. Um, recall a generation ago, one of the populist slogans of American public policy was shrink government to the size that it could be drowned in a bathtub. Well, that kind of policy has implications, right? And we're seeing now uh, the extent to which that posture runs up against the fundamental demands and needs of a population whenever uh, a policy leads to challenges that are confronted in terms of the infrastructure. Um, we, we, we may be looking at a point where we, we, we'll have to rethink the kind of direction that we've been going in with the kind of austerity measures that we kind of uh, implement within uh, American politics and public policy.
Yeah, and Riley, I wanted to ask you about that because in your coverage areas in, in more parts of rural Georgia, um, this could play in major because uh, President Biden's administration wants to pivot uh, long term to cleaner tech, to greener tech. And what we're seeing already in, in Georgia is, you know, one of the la- largest solar arrays in Dalton in the nation is in Dalton. Um, the uh, SK Innovation electric vehicle battery plant is setting roots in uh, a section of northeast Georgia. Um, so some of the, the, the future of the industry is, is planting, is taking root right in Georgia right now. Absolutely. And you think about how much of the economy in Georgia is driven by those rural areas. I think there's excitement for some of these innovations. Obviously, up in Dalton, that was big news. Um, There's also, you know, a little bit of wariness for situations exactly like this. You know, there's some concern of switching um, up systems that have, you know, worked to their extent for a while. But I think there, like I said, there's excitement in rural areas, but some wariness about changes. And Representative Oliver, this also shows you just how fragile our network is. You know, a couple of days of a, of shutdown has, has, has already sparked outages in some parts of the state. Is there anything that the state can do um, to make it to, to secure uh, this, this distribution of fuel? I've been aware of ransom attacks on state systems in a variety of ways. There was a big attack on a variety of court systems. Uh, so we've been aware for some time about the dynamic that makes us totally stop in our tracks. I don't hear a lot of information about solutions. I hear a lot of uh, a new infrastructure going over in Augusta about cybersecurity, and I think, though, we're a long way away from simply having to make a decision. Do you pay the ransom person? Uh, I have not heard in the news whether the Colonial Pipeline is paying the ransom. Uh, I'm curious about that. There was a a county around uh, kind of the outer perimeter county that actually put on its agenda uh, pay ransom, $50,000. They voted in public to pay it. Uh, The city of Atlanta attack that Mayor Bottoms talked about early in her administration uh, has cost them tens of millions of dollars, and maybe they should have paid the ransom. We do not have a solution is what I am hearing today, and we are very vulnerable. And I think this week is going to teach us a lot about our vulnerabilities because it affects every Georgian, every Georgian's plan for today. Yeah, and I think um, I think some governments even take out insurance policies in, in case exactly. they're cyber attacks so they don't have to pick those public votes. But you're right. Um, it is a growing and scary phenomenon happening. Let's shift gears a little bit um, to a vote that is a basically a foregone conclusion. The House GOP conference will, will vote to expel Liz Cheney from Wyoming from a leadership position today. Um, her team isn't even contesting the fight at this point. Um, but, you know, what's interesting, the local wrinkle is that Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is throwing a monkey wrench in the proceedings. It's kind of a plot twist, a local plot twist. She wants more time for candidates to emerge uh, before a vote on her replacement. She's hoping for alternatives to Lisa Stavonik. Professor Young, what does this all say about Marjorie Taylor Greene's influence and role in the National Party? Because just about every time she tweets right now, it gets national headlines. Well... Indeed, the conversation is about the extent to which former President French, uh, President Trump, and think about our CAU president, <laughs> um, um, uh, former President uh, uh, Trump remains the leader of the Republican Party, then we should assume that the elected officials 
at the federal level who are closest to him or who he has uh, christened, in a sense, uh, will then inherit the power in terms of the uh, leadership of the, uh, of the Congress and, and other uh, uh, spaces. And notwithstanding her rebuke for her comments uh, and the loss of her seat, uh, uh, her, her committee uh, assignments, I think there's a possibility here that beyond a type of uh, uh, intrigue discussion in the state of Georgia, this may be another dynamic within the power play in Republican politics. And I think what can come out of this, especially if she gets what she's asking for with regard to more time, regardless of who emerges, the or whomever, if she's able to exercise that kind of power to the extent that she delays this, you will see her emerge, notwithstanding her loss of her committee assignments, as one of the leaders in the Republican Party. Now, it becomes even more interesting when held alongside of what I'm hearing to be this notion that um, McCarthy may not be as powerful mm-hmm. a leader in, 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 Republican, uh, uh, um, um, in the Republican Party as he himself may assume. Um, and so, and I don't want to suggest that uh, um, Green will emerge, but certainly if we are correct, in terms of her proximity to Trump and being christened by Trump, uh, it opens the door for others who may be more established and more seasoned Republican leaders uh, uh, to step into the breach and move this party in, the, in, the, in a very different direction. Leo? You know, this is all a very interesting thing because I think this is actually um, catapulted green into relevance beyond the sensational um, in the sense that, you know, we thought that she'd been removed from committees, She was not going to have the ability to represent her constituencies. Now this gives her a reason and a voice on something that is actually substantive. And that substantive item is that Elise Stefanik is one of the most liberal Republicans there is. And so now Green can say, I'm now here for the rescue of conservatism, which Green knows little about. But yet she now is fighting for a real, you know, not Cheney, but a, another conservative. She's asking for more time to find that person because you can't find a more liberal conservative than Stefanik. And her people, at least smart enough voters to know, wait a minute, what are we doing here? And that's going to be a problem if she doesn't do what she's doing. Yeah. And, Leo, I just want to ask you a quick follow up, too, because it's not like Liz Cheney's going to stop speaking out against President Trump after this. So what, no what kind of lasting impact will this have on, on the GOP, you think, in Georgia and nationally? No, no, no. Look, this whole thing is drastically um, challenging for the Republican Party, for democracy, because we do need to have a reasoned, conservative, center-right voice out there. And look, she's no shrinking ballot. Liz Cheney is a fighter. I mean, you know, in the, in the Wyoming censored her 74-8, I think it was. She continued on. She has not backed off. She's actually become more vociferous. And Dick Cheney, who is no shrinking valid either, he is now fully behind her and supporting her. She's going to run again. The, the, the Republican, uh, you know, far, far, far Trumplican Republican Party tried to turn her primary in Wyoming into a runoff primary, which it isn't. So she doesn't have to win. She just has to get a plurality of the vote. And I think she'll win again. And so long term, she will be part of that movement of a GOP 2.0 that's more like a Tea Party movement. But on the reason side, she is going to become a heroine. She's going to be a Joan of Arc. Representative Oliver, this just seems like a continuation of the Republican infighting we saw throughout the 2021 runoffs. It's a total disaster for the Republicans, in my view. I watched... uh, uh, 
Congresswoman Cheney's speech last night, watched most of it, um, how, how clear she was about the principle of leadership, how clear she was about a party that's basing its entire strategy on the big lie and how that is a significant threat to democracy. I was very impressed. I have not followed her career a lot. But obviously, her role right now is very significant, and I've been very interested in how she delivers her manner, her George Washington pin that she wore last night, uh, in her very somber delivery. Um, I was very impressed. And when you contrast that with the total vacuum of any other responsible discussion highlighted by Marjorie Taylor Greene's non-statement of any significance, but the media immediately tracked it to her. It's pretty fascinating. I'm also interested in the dynamic of the Republicans trying to find a woman, any woman, who will set forth an image that they think is positive. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not the positive image of a woman from the perspective of some of the Republican leaders. She is going to continue to absorb or put forth a number of different media attention-grabbing uh, statements, whether they mean anything or not. The media is drawn to her. And Congresswoman from New York is, is not any way tied to any set of principles of, of recent Republican leadership. So you have these three women who are front and center today, and the one that's being kicked out of office is the responsible, somber, conservative leader of principles and democracy. And the other two women are, are in some ways in not carrying forth any kind of reasonable, honest delivery of conservative principles. Riley, Pretty you get bad the, for the Republicans, in my view. Riley, you get the last word of the segment. You know, I, I think that it, along the same vein, the role of Marjorie Taylor Greene is changing. I think that she has become kind of the weight trying to keep the pendulum swinging more further to the right than swinging back to the middle of the Republican Party. And I also think that whether the GOP likes it or not, she is playing a huge role in the next election, especially in 20 or especially in Georgia. You know, she has the grassroots support of Trump loyal voters and she's fundraising like nobody's business. I think she has more power than the GOP would like to admit. And Democrats are certainly fundraising offer, too. It seems like a, the day doesn't go by without me getting a fundraising appeal mentioning MTG. Well, we need to hit our first break here, but stay with us. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut today. He will return to the show tomorrow. I'm joined today by Riley Bunch, Leo Smith, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, and Professor Kurt Young. Let's jump right back into the conversation because we've got other news from the U.S. Capitol. The Senate is taking up the sweeping election and voter access legislation pushed by Democrats to counteract election laws like those passed here in Georgia. 
After a long fight yesterday, it deadlocked in a 9-9 vote. Left on the cutting room floor was an amendment filed by Georgia Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock to restrict Georgia and other states from banning outside groups from passing out water to voters standing in line. Riley, I want to go to you first on this one, because this provision has become something that national media has kind of latched on to. It's become one of the most controversial parts of this election overall. Uh, And I want to get your your take and, and give you a chance to explain what it does. Absolutely. So, you know, in our famous election bill passed last session, there is a provision included, which means that volunteers not, you know, there was already requirements against politically motivated campaigners giving out food and water in line, but volunteers are not allowed to hand out food and water to voters in line. I think it's 150 feet um, uh, out from a polling place. And this is really a provision that has picked up absolute the most national attention, I would argue. And it's because voting rights activists are pointing to this as a, you know, a blatant attack on minority communities, on rural communities that are plagued and have been historically plagued with long, long lines at the polls. And you know, it makes national media picking up and makes a good headline that they say grandma can't be handed water in line, right? Um, Republicans, on the other hand, argue that they're they're trying to keep um, politically motivated volunteers from swaying voters in the last second. And uh, th- obviously, this would be something that John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock would pick up in the Senate because it is is an easy one to defend against. It's easy to attack and say that you know this is not a provision that is on good faith. Clearly, the whole bill is not on good faith. And so to see John Ossoff bring that up was was not surprising at all. Yeah, Leo, this is part of the overall, that was an amendment for for the overall For the People Act, um, which is one of the the Democrats' top priorities. Um, But obviously, there's a lot of Republican pushback Republicans who say that it would standardize uh, election rules, it would it would take away local control. Um, what are you hearing from fellow Republicans about how they're handling, how they're how they're uh, viewing this legislation in Washington? Well, I think one of the things you're seeing is um, a long desired uh, mechanism of getting Republicans involved in grassroots activism and local voter registration and souls to the poll from the right side. Um, That kind of stuff is now coming back into discussion. We need to get involved in actually being involved in voter engagement in that way, in the way that I was when I was with the party back in the day. Um, But, you know, what's happening here is also if we don't want people to thirst while they're in line, then we need to reduce the length of time that people wait in the lines. And we can work on the the election um, administration in a way that, that addresses those things. Uh, people can get water nearby. So um, bringing out organizations, private and pub, um, public, that are near um, the precinct, 150, 200 feet away, um, to hand the water out before they get in line is a possibility. And basically also making our whole precinct management more service-oriented. If those people might be engaged, the young people that were recruited in the last cycle to work in elections now can be engaged and also in, in helping serve the people waiting in the lines. So there are things now that people are turning into the mechanics of voting day. And I think Republicans will be more focused on that from here on. Well, Representative Oliver, and that's what Democrats say this bill, this national bill would do, this federal bill would do. It would make it so you have, you have, you have more voting equipment requirements. So there could be lower lines. There could be shorter lines. You have other, uh, you have other standards um, to, to the Democrats hope would eliminate obstacles to the ballot box. 
We have to have shorter lines. We cannot, any election that requires a several hour wait to vote is a failure of logistics, mechanics, planning, failure of some kind. My question, which I'll probably never know the answer, but I'm interested in your response. Did the Republicans intend for no water for grandma to be the center of the discussion? Did that, was that a, a, a intention? Because otherwise they just shut themselves in the foot. I mean, why do you represent to the world that you don't want to help grandma in line? Uh, and unless you want to generate some kind of backlash, it's, it's, it has taken an enormous amount of tension. It's given sound bites to uh, Reverend Warnock. Uh, was it intentional? The same way I, I said when Governor Kemp was going to open up tattoo parlors, did he intend for that to be the focus of the discussion as a distraction? Did the Republicans intend no water for grandma to be the focus of the discussion to avoid the more significant, substantive, dis disturbing issues of takeover of local election officers and elimination of provisional voters. What is their thinking? How could this possibly help them? Uh, we, Professor, I want to ask you about that because, you know, from the local media perspective, we were focused a lot more on other parts of the bill, um, you know, ballot drop boxes, um, ID requirements for uh, absentee mail-in votes, that kind of thing. Um, but it was, it was my wake-up call was when I was on one of those national cable shows, and that's all they asked me about. And right. luckily, I was somewhat prepared for it um, because I've been, I've been at events where uh, I remember when when former President Obama came to stump for Democrats uh, on a Friday night before the election in '18, and right after the event at, at around 10 p.m. I saw volunteers for Abrams' campaign say, there's still people in line at, at I think it was South Cab Mall. They went out and immediately started handing them out hot chocolate, pizza, anything to, to keep the early voters um, still engaged and still in line. Uh, were, Professor, were you surprised to see this kind of blow up on the national scene? I, I like, like Representative Oliver was wondering what was the calculus behind such, a, such a, uh, um, uh, an approach. But, no, I'm not surprised, though. Um, uh, with the what we've seen since then, because the the way that the water bottle issue, if we can just make it very simple, uh, works, is that it on the one hand helps to mobilize those mm -hmm. who see the issue as a major threat to the franchise of voting. It's an easy message that can communicate it to the populace who, let's be quite honest, who will not necessarily read the, 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 the totality of the document, as we all will, right? Uh, so it's something that's easy to capture the imagination of the people in a way that mobilizes them to go out and vote, right? And it speaks to different age groups who can, who, who can uh, uh, see uh, um, something here to respond to. At the same time, uh, um, <laughs> My, all, all due respect and apologies to, to the platform here, but uh, we can't say that a, a, the media is always in, interested in nuance, right? <laughs> the media is interested in the, in the sound bite. So it serves everyone's purpose. It serves the purpose of those who will be needing uh, massive voter turnout, uh, particularly on the Democratic side in the upcoming cycles. Um, so I don't think it's surprising. What's, what, what, what interests me a bit more, though, is the extent to which what we're seeing is 
the a, a, a national strategy now begin, beginning to develop around this particular issue, right? A national strategy. Um, of course, for the Democratic Party, the fundamental issue, as my colleague William Boone will say, the fundamental issue is how do you expand the voting uh, franchise? And at the same time, actually literally right at the same time, there seems to be a discussion, and I, I would love to hear Leo confirm this from his own uh, vantage point. It seems to be a discussion within the ranks of the Republican uh, um, Party, which seems to suggest that uh, um, the effort to expand the party to include more people of color, more, more, more uh, young people, um, may not necessarily be the way forward, and therefore the most effective strategy going forward is to try to pick off uh, voters in different parts of the country, uh, uh, not just in the state of Georgia, right, to restrict the voting uh, franchise. And so, uh, um, yeah, that to me is uh, uh, the broader national implication of what we're seeing around this water bottle issue. Again, forgive the oversimplification, but I think it's appropriate. Yeah, Leo, you're the former engagement outreach director for the Georgia Republican Party, um, and you you fought this battle internally with Republicans in the state, I know, for a long time. How do you feel about this? Well, yeah, I mean, this, these are challenging times with all these demographic shifts, and people tend to sometimes be emotional rather than rational, and they tend to, you know, fall back to old ways of, you know, maintaining their sense of, uh, you know, status quo or their sense of, uh, you know, being at peace with the power and the and the opportunities they've been able to operate with. But let me, I'll, I'm going to address that, but I also want to be clear. That line warming, which is something, the idea of people being in a line that might be an elected official, we know we had cases of that in past elections, where people did indeed hand out water and goods while wearing their campaign shirt, while wearing a hat, um, whether it was MAGA or whether it was Vote Blue. Um, that happened. That's a real thing. And that there are people who were actually trying to not take water from grandmother, but address a real issue that is disruptive to democracy when it comes to influencing people just before they vote. So I just want to make that sure that there is a law against that and that there were people who have broken that law. So that is a real thing. On the issue of the Georgia GOP or Republican Party in general, Trump actually showed that he can increase Hispanic and, and black voters for a Republican candidate, even with all the rhetoric that he was using. That is less about what Trump was doing and more about what Democrats weren't doing to appeal to black middle class, Hispanic middle class people. So when you look at people like South, uh, counties like South Texas, you know, some of the counties there where you got Latina, Latina women being chairman of the GOP, Latina women um, running all of the Republican stuff in some counties in, in, in Texas, and they're voting for white men. That is, that, those are issues of a policy that they're worried about, family income, free market opportunity, education. Those are things that are happening there. And so the party still does have the, the opportunity to get back to a policy platform and win voters the way I did with, with Governor Deal on uh, tripling the black vote for him. We can do that again, even with this sort of this retrenchment into, you know, maybe this idea that, oh, the, the American way is being threatened and we need to fight hard for that and find the demographic of people who are fearful and maybe even xenophobic. We need to like we need to like show that policy can bring us all together. And I think we'll do that. It might be a while before we can do that. But we have candidates coming out that are going to try their best to move back to that kind of engagement. And, Riley, I, I know you've been out around Georgia seeing the same things I, I've seen. But the, the dominant cry for Republicans right now 
um, at least one of the dominant cries seems to be about cancel culture, what, what Leo is alluding to, about about the, the, the notion that Republicans' voices, that conservative voices are being nixed by an unfair media environment and, and, and liberals. Um, do you see, you know... Do you see room for other voices right now in that discussion that Leo's talking about? Do you see a lot of uh, newer Republican voices coming out uh, in 2022 to run for statewide office? You know, no. <laughs> I think I think it's hard right now. Leo said, you know, it's going to take a while for us to be able to get back to where policy was the main talking point on the campaign trail. Um, in, in rural areas, it is still this very, like, President Trump just still has such a hold. That faction of the party has such a hold. And we're seeing that. We've seen that in, you know, the depression of votes from those voters, right? I, I think it is going to be a long, a good long while before we can get back to um, these more moderate middle ground candidates. And we're seeing that in the 2022 candidates that are coming up so far, you know, just um, with Chris, Chris Carr's reelection that he's announcing, I think he's going to have a really hard time because he is not this kind of more further right Republican. Um, so I, I think it's going to be a while before we see that kind of policy discussion on the campaign trails. And, and Representative Oliver, on, on that note, we just got the news officially, and not that this was yeah. not expected, but officially that Liz Cheney was uh, was uh, ousted from House leadership. And uh, as she said um, it, shortly afterwards, um, we must go forward based on truth. We cannot both embrace the big lie and embrace the Constitution. That was what Liz Cheney said upon being ousted from House leadership. And that, Mayor, Representative Oliver, speaks to sort of the Republican internal division right now. And I'm looking at her at her quote as, as you're reading it. Um, she's right. She's right. Can you base a party on a lie? And how many of the Republican base, we keep referring to them as the Trump base, are going to continue to believe that President Biden was not lawfully elected? Do they really believe it, or is it only a messaging device? And I've been pretty fascinated watching that. When I asked my Republican colleagues in the House directly, uh, they changed the subject. Um, so the, the Trump base is there, clearly, but surely something is going to start distracting them away from him. He's, he's not, um, obviously, his new social media platforms, as I can see, are not really taking off. Facebook's not letting him back. Um, how can he sustain this power in the face of other real problems that Georgians are facing this morning, like gas, like are their children going to school, like are their children going to be given help to catch up? I mean, and, and the unemployment rate, particularly for women. When, when is the Trump base or the Republican leadership going to start talking about things that matter to Georgians who are struggling at this point? They may be struggling with issues of resentment towards the elite, that kind of rhetoric that Trump has taken advantage of. But there are other real issues today. When is Republicans going to have any platform at all, any platform at all, which they have none today? Um, that's going to address things that people care about as opposed to this false rhetoric about Biden not being legitimately elected. Leo, I hear what Representative Oliver is saying, but I also covered GOP grassroots meetings just a few weeks ago where a dozen plus of them, more than a dozen of them, voted to censure Brad Raffensperger and to punish 
Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, and a half dozen of them or so voted to censure Governor Kemp because he st he he defied Trump's calls to overturn the election. How how long do you think do you think pr former President Trump's staying power will last in Georgia through 2022? Oh, Leo, you are mute. Sorry, I'm on mute. <laughs> so I'm going to rest in that 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 opportunity that we have, and that is is that. As we said earlier in the show, politics are local. Not all politics are local, and we're we're finding that with social media, with you know CNN or Fox News or whatever, we've nationalized politics in a way that somebody from one district, like District 14 of Georgia, a super ultra conservative district, can have a national voice, which makes it seem like local politics aren't as important. But there will be candidates rising up from Wyoming. Uh, and Liz Cheney herself, as she begins her campaign and continues her movement of conscience towards the Constitution, there will be candidates right here from Georgia that will start to appeal to our hearts and minds and our reason. And I think that we will start to find pockets where, um, whether those, those areas are purple or whether those areas are pink, um, that, that, that red will start to come out with a voice that not, might not be as Trumplican as some people might have wanted, might be more policy and aspirational oriented, and they will win. I believe that some voices will get through, and that is a remnant. Uh, Professor Young, before we put a pin on this part of the discussion, uh, the other big question that, that congressional Democrats face, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, what they're going to do about the filibuster, because there's no way 10 Republicans are going to join Democrats right now to break the 60-volt threshold on this voting rights bill or, or, or any other major debate. So, so what are you watching in Congress over this filibuster debate? The, the, the timing, as they say, timing is everything, right? Uh, um, um, looking at uh, two, uh, 2022 uh, coming right on the horizon, and so uh, uh, there's pressure in the administration to get something significant done. Um, well, we know what tends to happen in midterm elections where the, 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 the party and the presidency tends to lose uh, votes uh, in the legislature. And I think it's just about four vote uh, difference right now, if my memory serves. And so the, the pressure is on. And I think, Greg, I think that pressure um, may begin to uh, 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 raise more questions about the perhaps the Joe Manchin uh, wing of the party's uh, reluctance to go down that path. Um, I, I, I believe uh, Senator McConnell perhaps gave the opponents to Manchin's line uh, a bit more fuel uh, in his uh, stated position, as he stated in the Obama administration, that he uh, uh, intends to frustrate uh, the successes of the administration, which is uh, uh, um, it continues to raise questions about the direction of the party, the Republican Party, to my mind, uh, to the extent to which it uh, wants to be at the same time a leading national party uh, and at the same time undermining the uh, um, the policies that uh, traditionally uh, the party would have uh, out of power would have supported uh, to some extent. Uh, but the other thing quickly, I don't want to run on. The, the, the other thing that I'm watching, Greg, is the extent to which there's a backlash from the uh, um, uh, the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the same one vote that, uh, which is a powerful vote that Joe Manchin has, Bernie Sanders also has. And just as Bernie Sa uh, uh, Joe Manchin can say, I will not allow this, uh, it's only a matter of time before the progressive wing, seeing the fleeting opportunities 
mm-hmm. um, that well, what appears to be the season, season opportunities uh, with having uh, all uh, um, um, uh, de- uh, Democratic leadership in the House, the Senate, and the presidency uh, um, threatened. Uh, um, they may see this as an opportunity, the last opportunity to uh, uh, demand a particular kind of change. And uh, from that perspective, I don't know if I'm, if I'm correct, but I, I suspect that from that perspective, uh, the filibuster may be in danger or may be up for a creative way of perhaps uh, uh, um, um, eroding it for a minute and then reestablishing it in, in just in the nick of time, right? And that's uh, exactly so what like, uh, Senator Warnock's yeah. talked about, is, is eroding it mm-hmm. maybe for voting rights legislation. Um, we have to get to our final break right now, but stick around and we'll be right back with more Political Rewind. We're back with more of Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the AJC, sitting in for Bill Nygut today. He'll be back at it tomorrow. Our panel today is Dr. Kurt Young, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, state representative from Decatur, Democrat, Leo Smith, Republican strategist and president of the Engaged Futures Group, and Riley Bunch, state house reporter for CNHI News, uh, covering rural Georgia and the Atlanta capital. Uh, well, guys, I wanted to get to a, it seems like a more parochial issue, but it's really not. Uh, we all knew this was coming. The game of musical chairs is starting up in earnest a few days after Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom said she wouldn't run for another term. Former Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed is still out there. He's it seems like he could enter, but who knows? Uh, a few others are saying they're out of the running and still others, including a, f- a few council members, are soon expected to join the fray. Riley, I want to start with you on this, because as I mentioned, you you, you cover Georgia from a more rural perspective, but uh, the Atlanta mayor's race, and the Atlanta mayor has a sort of an outsized role in state politics in Georgia. Well, it does, because, you know, Atlanta is the hub of every all things politics in Georgia, and I, I think that in rural areas, they're watching closely. Um, I, I think that not so much they're watching the politics of Atlanta itself. I think that there's a big role that the Atlanta mayor will play in the next election cycle. I think that's what they're watching more closely. Um, but I, I would say that rural areas, you know, they're throwing their political weight around, too, mm-hmm. and they also want to be heard. So um, they're watching Atlanta closely, but more in terms of state wide races. Professor, it reminds me of that saying, that saying Atlanta influences everything. Uh, <laughs> is it safe to say that not just not just the rest of the Georgia, but really uh, nationally, this race is going to get a lot of national attention? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you look at uh, um, uh, Lance Bottom's profile. Uh, her profile was one who was being considered for uh, uh, for national uh, political positions, right? And, and so and of course, not, it's not just that the city of Atlanta uh, has this kind of weight in the state of Georgia. It has the equal weight in, throughout the entire region. And for a number of reasons, uh, a, a major focal point of national politics. Uh, so the mayor of Atlanta then is going to always uh, uh, play a role. As long as we have a Democratic leadership uh, at the national level, the state of Atlanta, uh, I was going to say the state of Atlanta is a concept that I, I, I like to uh, reference. Um, but uh, uh, the mayor of Atlanta is going to also configure into into national politics, whether one is running for or being appointed to a certain post, or just because of the shared nature of Atlanta politics uh, and, and its impact in, in, in national uh, races. Now, uh, the interesting thing to me uh, that this brings to mind 
Uh, uh, quickly, Greg, we, we we saw over the last two cycles, Mary Norwood get closer and closer, mm-hmm. and that's an indication of the perhaps shifting of a <clears throat> of a generation away from the the previous generation of uh, of uh, 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 Atlanta uh, black city mayors, right? Um, um, uh, it's something that uh, has been a subject of national mayoral politics for the last you know quarter of a century, perhaps even longer. Um, we may be seeing now uh, a shift occur in that uh, uh, long tradition of Atlanta politics um, uh, uh, towards uh, uh, um, non-African-American uh, uh, mayors in the city, given the demographic shifts and the gentrification discussions that's taking place across the city. And, yeah, that's a great point because, and, and by the way, uh, former Councilwoman Mary Norwood, who came within 1,000 votes of defeating both Kasim Reed and Keisha Lance Bottoms in, in, in two elections, has still not ruled out a run. But, Alina, Leo, to the professor's point, Mayor Bottoms become this national figure. I mean, a year ago she was being vetted as a running mate. Just a few months ago, she publicly turned down a cabinet position um, with Joe Biden's administration. So we're not talking about some minor player on the political scene here. You know, you've, you've got to respect um, Mayor Bottoms's honesty and transparency that it was well, not even into a year of her being mayor, that she really wasn't enjoying it as much as she thought she might, that the, the burden of leadership of uh, dealing with a hostile national environment was too much for her. She wasn't enjoying it. She wasn't managing well. It was it was tough. And so, you know, that that's a real thing. And I want to comment just quickly. I think also what's interesting, Professor uh, Mary Margaret, is that we're now seeing an urban election cycle that has a disenchanted, of course, white taxpayer class um, in Buckhead. But you also have a lot of African-American middle class people who are also disenchanted with uh, uh, Mayor Bottoms. I think Felicia Moore, having played more of the moderate Democrat, um, she's much more uh, has presented herself as a reconciling, cross-partisan kind of leadership a leader. I've seen her at Republican events over the years, uh, well before Trump. She was at Republican events. Um, I'm not trying to hurt her candidacy by saying that. But I do see young black professionals who are center-left. Um, really rallying around her and business community rallying around her early on in a way that I've never seen in urban politics. Yeah, Representative Oliver, I want to ask you about that, because do you see Atlanta going further to the left or maybe more to the middle in this election? I would guess more to the middle. Uh, that's a guess based on the the corporate and professional crowd of people that's moving in. You look at the Microsoft move to the Bankhead Highway Marta station uh, as an example. Uh, I think Mary Norwood stays in her race to be on the city council. I think that's where she would enjoy herself more. I don't know that she's going to raise money. I don't know how she competes or manages with this Buckhead City crowd out there. Um, She's from Buckhead clearly, but she could not run for mayor and be associated with we need Buckhead as a separate city in any way. So I I don't see her as a mayoral candidate. The most fascinating character in the mayoral discussion is, of course, Kasim Reed. What is his plan? He has not, uh, this is kind of lawyer talk, he's not joined a major law firm. And that's what I would have expected him to do, leaving Atlanta politics, a major law firm that national, like Maynard Jackson went to a national major, to to have a national presence, to have a future financial security, to be a player in the Democratic Party. He's not done that. 
and I can't figure out what his professional plan was other than politics. So I'm, I'm watching him very closely trying to figure out that strategy. Atlanta uh, gentrification, uh, corporate involvement in inner city Atlanta for a wide variety of different ways. Um, the annexation, of course, the annexation of Emory out of my district was pretty interesting. All makes Atlanta slightly more moderate, I think. Yeah, and I agree with you that if former Mayor Reed gets in, he becomes the front runner. but we'll see if he gets in. I want to get to another topic uh, that came out this week, and we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but Attorney General Chris Carr says he's running for re-election, and he's not running for U.S. Senate. That makes another big name out of the running to challenge Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock, in 2022. Leo, let's start with you on this one, because I've quoted other Republicans saying they're getting more and more antsy that a household name, you know, a big a heavy hitter isn't in this contest yet. Are you getting worried? Well, I'm not getting worried. I, I think um, the fact that Kelly Leffler actually created a pack that deals with uh, the mechanics of elections, um, that she's still out there undecided is, I mean, she was the incumbent after all her loss. And so her being there and not having said either way is, is really a major opportunity. And Warnock, I mean, you know, look, I think it's really good that he's giving attention to South Georgians. I mean, that's Republican country. And I think that's going to push Republicans to also give attention to South Georgians and, and new candidates there. So I think, you know, in all, it's good for South Georgia. It's good for greater Georgia, a greater Georgia. And, and you know, whether it's the governor or me, uh, we care about Georgians, all of them, outside of the metro area, too. And so Warnock is doing well. To, to do what he's doing, and it, South Georgia is the winner. Riley, we were both out with Reverend with Senator Warnock in South Georgia, uh, Middle Georgia, I should say, last week, um, and he is kind of making a beeline for rural Georgia in his stops. And what, what do you think that says about his reelection campaign? Well, absolutely. I think they're going to pay more attention to areas outside more rural areas of the state. Um, I just heard a quote the other day. Someone said, you know, if Biden lost 12,000 votes from rural Georgia, he didn't win Georgia, right? Um, I think the weight of rural areas is being seen a lot now, communities of color. Um, From what I, when we were in um, South Georgia the other day, Greg, with Warnock, you know, what I was hearing, though, was, of course, they're excited to see a statewide candidate down there, but they're also going to, you know, they're going to hold him accountable. So I think there's a lot at stake for both the Republican candidate who, you know, steps up to the plate to challenge Warnock and Warnock in these rural areas. And real quickly, Professor, before we wrap it up, um, I, I get the sense that no matter who emerges from the Republican field, they'll become a, a, the superstar in their own right by this time next year or later on this year, next year, I should say, because uh, because of the, all the money and, and, and resources being spent. Oh, Professor, you're on mute. Sorry about that. I'm muted. Uh, Georgia is going to attract, continue to attract a tremendous amount of uh, campaign dollars uh, going forward because because we know how high the stakes are. Um, um, we know also in the next cycle that there may be a number of uh, current uh, Republican senators who uh, are either retiring or, or uh, moving on in one way or the other. So that's going to uh, uh, change the dynamic slightly, potentially change the dynamic. But yes, Georgia is going to remain uh, constant uh, in American politics going forward. Well, thank you, Professor. And that's all the time we have for Political Rewind today. I'd like to thank our guests, Mary Margaret Oliver, Leo Smith, Kurt Young, and Riley Bunch. Bill Nygut will be back at his microphone tomorrow. Thanks to producer Sam Burmas-Dawes, senior producer Amelia Brock, and engineer Jesse Neiswanger for their hard work today helping me out behind the scenes. I'm Greg Bluestein. Thanks for joining us, and have a safe rest of the day. 